Thanks. Uh, thank you, Michelle. All right. Um, it is uh, so good to be here. Always, always is. Uh, we're in the last week of a uh, three-week series called Three People. We've looked at two of these people. And the, the, the basic idea of what we're talking about is that every one of us needs three different people in our lives in order for us to be uh, everything that we were created and everything that we're made to be as, as people of God. Uh, we all need a Paul in our lives. And Paul in, in the Bible, if you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, Paul in the Bible is, is kind of synonymous with being like a mentor figure to, to a lot of people. He was a, uh, maybe an older person, someone more mature in the faith. Uh, we all need someone like that who's gone the journey before us. They've walked it. They've lived it. And they're willing to share their experiences with us. That's a Paul. Uh, we also need a Timothy in our lives. And Timothy in the Bible to Paul was kind of his uh, younger uh, son in the faith. He was a disciple. He was a younger guy, less mature, who needed a little bit more direction, somebody that Paul was pouring into. So we need someone who's pouring into our lives, and then we need people into whom we're pouring into, uh, into whose lives we're pouring. The third kind of person we need to talk about today is we all need a Barnabas in our lives. And when you think about Barnabas in Scripture, the one thing, two things that we know about, that, about Barnabas that most people, even with a kind of rudimentary uh, church upbringing, will know is that Barnabas was a really good friend to Paul. He wasn't much older, maybe. He wasn't much younger, maybe. But he was just a good friend. He was like Paul's bro. He was like his, his, his friend, uh, someone that really helped him and inspired him to be more than he could be on his own. The word that most people would think about when they think about Barnabas is the word encouragement. In fact, that's what he was called in Acts chapter 4. They call him the son of encouragement. So today, the, the, the main idea is we need someone, a friend, who's going to encourage us in order that we could be more than we could be on our own. I don't know what that word encouragement means or the images or thoughts that it conjures up in your mind, but to me it reminds me of a time when I was in seminary and I lived, I, I, was, I had a roommate um, and this roommate was in seminary with me and one summer he went on a mission trip to Asia. He goes off to Asia he comes back from this mission trip. He was teaching English out there with, a, with, a, with, a, with an organization. He comes back, and uh, when I see him after the summer, he's, like, so happy. Like, he's really, really happy. Like, so, like, head in the clouds, happy, has a smile on his face. I'm like, dude, you must have had a great summer, great mission trip. He's like, oh, my gosh, DK, uh, he would call me DK. You have no idea. Like, it was like the, the best mission trip. It was so amazing. And um, I was like, dude, would love to hear all about it. And then he said, yeah, maybe sometime uh, later today. So he went into his room, <coughs> and he closed the door. A couple hours later, um, I don't know what he was doing, uh, maybe taking a nap or something. But a couple hours later, he comes out, and he still got that, like, cheesy smile on his face. I was like, man, that must have been a great mission trip. Like, what in the world is going on? <coughs> he's like, he, so we sat down on the sofa, and he's like, yo, when I was in Asia, uh, I met this girl. <laughs> I was like, ah, that explains everything, right? That explains this deer in the headlights, this cheesy smile that is plastered on you for the past three hours. I was like, so tell me about her. He's like, dude, she's like, you know, she's on the mission trip, and she's just so encouraging. <laughs> so I was like, that's awesome. You know, we all need encouragement. We all need to be people of encouragement. So you know, how does she encourage you? He's like, I don't know, man. She's just, she's just like encouraging. She's like, 
she just like makes me feel so happy, makes me feel so good, and, and she's just so encouraging. Like that, those were the only words that came out of his mouth. Like, so what does she do? Does she like sing worship songs to you? Is she like quoting scripture to you? You guys like, I don't know, praying on the phone? He's like, nah, she's just like, she just makes me feel really good. I was like, obviously she does that. And I thought to myself, when he talks about his girlfriend, now his wife, as being an encouraging person because she makes him feel happy and good, I felt like, man, that's such a far cry from what the Bible means when it calls Barnabas the son of encouragement. When Paul hangs out with Barnabas and he says, this is my friend Barnabas, everyone would translate Barnabas into son of encouragement. And when they asked him, what's so good about Barnabas? I don't think Paul said, he just, I don't know, he just makes me feel so happy. I don't think that's what it was. Because as you look through their relationship in the book of Acts, there are a lot of times where Paul wasn't made happy because of Barnabas. Said some hard things to him. What does it mean when someone is an encouragement to you, when someone is a son of encouragement? Why do we need someone like Barnabas in our lives? In, in Acts 4, when it introduces Barnabas as the son of encouragement, the word encouragement literally translated in Greek is the word paraclete. If you understand Greek, then you'll understand that this is the word that Jesus uses when he talks about the Holy Spirit coming to live within the believers, and he gives that discourse at a time where the disciples' world is being rocked, where Jesus has said, I'm going to die. In a little bit, I'm not going to be here anymore, and you will not be able to to see me. Don't hold on to me. Don't cry for me. I'm going to be gone, but I'm sending you the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. What did that mean? The paraclete, a paraclete is somebody who comes alongside of you in your time of greatest need, who sits intimately with you, who knows everything about you, who cares for you, and who gives you comfort and who gives you strength when you don't have the comfort and strength that you're longing for. That's what a paraclete is. That's what it means to encourage someone. The son of encouragement means Barnabas was someone who had come alongside of Paul in his time of need, and when Paul didn't have the strength to go forward, it was Barnabas who took that strength from outside of him and put it into him so that he could live the life that he was meant to live. And our thesis for the past three weeks is that as much as we need a Paul, as much as we need a Timothy, every single one of us, me included, is in need of someone like Barnabas who is going to pour into our lives in this way. So what we want to do today is look at Acts chapter 9. This is actually, the, we're not introduced, to, we're introduced to Barnabas in Acts 4, but Paul and Barnabas together, we see their interaction for the first time in recorded scripture in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, it says at the top of your, uh, in Acts chapter 9 verse 19, it says at the top, Saul in Damascus and Jerusalem. So verse 19 picks up, in a town called Damascus, which is modern-day Syria. What was Paul doing in Damascus? If you, um, you'll hear me use the name Paul and Saul interchangeably. These are the same person. At a later point in life, uh, Saul would no longer be called Saul, would be called Paul. But here in this context, he's still called Saul. And what's happening is he was on his way to Damascus because he had letters in hand from the high priest of Jerusalem in order that he would find Christians people like you and me. And with these letters in hand, which were basically arrest warrants, 
He would bring these Christians from Damascus to Jerusalem, throw them in prison in order that some of them might be killed. Paul was the front man for the greatest persecuting group that the world had known at the time. He is the leader of the ancient day ISIS groups, which were terrorizing neighborhoods and persecuting Christians, whether they were women, children, men, it did not matter. But he was the leader of that band of people, and he was on his way to Damascus in order to persecute more believers when on that road he encounters Jesus in his glory, and he gives up everything that he was doing, and he realizes that he has not been following the way of Scripture. And so in that moment, Saul's life is transformed by the gospel, by a Jesus who knew everything about him, yet forgave everything that he'd ever done and everything he'd ever do. And he changed his destiny, changed his life, changed his past, and set him on a new trajectory. And so Saul encounters Jesus. The good news is now firmly entrenched in him, and he's on a mission to tell everybody about the good news of who Jesus Christ really is. And as he's going... This is where we pick up in verse 19. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. And when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He in, in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. This is God's word. So Saul, bad man, killer of Christians, persecutor of the people of God, gets converted, has this dramatic encounter with Jesus and begins preaching the gospel in Damascus. But the Jews there, like he's preaching something other than what we believe. So they tried to kill him, but he sneaks out because there's some people who are looking out for his life. He sneaks out and he gets to Jerusalem. And he's excited because this group of people that he was ready to, to, to persecute and kill, all of a sudden he's seen the light. And he's ready to walk the way, and he goes to them, and he's like, yo, it's me, Paul. I'm like, I'm one of you now. Like, we're family. He's so excited to be part of that group. But they're afraid of him and say, we don't want you. Nobody wants to welcome him in except for a man named Barnabas. 
So what do we see? Three thoughts. First thing, here's the first thing. We all need someone, okay? We all need someone who will look past our labels and titles. We all need someone who's going to look past our labels and titles. I studied psychology, so I know a little bit about uh, the idea of labels and perception and, and reality. One of the things I did, I did this experiment uh, in my, uh, in my, as a psychology major. Where I w- w- sat outside, set up a, a little orange juice stand outside of, my, uh, of an apartment complex. And I had two cups, two cartons of orange juice. And I had orange juice to give to all the students who were walking by. Free orange juice, come and get it. And so people are so excited to drink their orange juice. What's the catch? No catch, no cost. The only thing, all I'm asking you to do is if you could rate it on taste from 1 to 10. Two different different cartons. The first one was this generic store-bought brand called Kroger, just a a normal thing of orange juice, drink it, eh, about three or four. The other one was this, uh, I forget the the, the name of it, the brand of it, but it was like this souped-up, really expensive kind of orange juice, really nice. Aren't you thirsty now? <laughs> really nice orange juice. Set it there. They would drink the Kroger one. Mm. Yeah, give it about a three. Try this one. This comes from this farm, whatever it was, delicious. They drink it. Mm. I think I'm going to give that a six or an eight or whatever it was. And as you would imagine, the orange juice that came from the amazing label carton got higher numbers. It wasn't a lot, lot, maybe like five to three or eight to six, or maybe the, the, the difference was between one and a half to two and a half points on the, on the scale. Perception affected their reality because here's the reality. The orange juice in both cartons was the exact same thing. But because they saw that label, almost every person said, I'm going to go with this one, the better looking one, because labels have a way of affecting our reality. What we need is someone who's going to look past our labels. We all have them. We all have them. Some of them are pretty neutral labels. College student, golfer, mother, dad, whatever it might be, husband. We all have labels like that. Student, sixth grader, 12th grader, college senior. We all have labels like that. Some of them are actually pretty good labels, pretty good titles to have. Oh, she's the prettiest one in our church. Ah, I like that label. Oh, he's the nicest guy. Maybe you like that one. He's a really, uh, that guy's so cool. Drives the nicest car in the school. Best dressed person at the church. Oh, this person is all that. Sweetest person. Everybody's best friend. Most likely to succeed. Some of these are labels and titles that we might want, but others of them, Labels either placed on us by others or that we've adopted ourselves or we call ourselves maybe labels that we don't really want people to identify us with. Maybe something about our past. Oh, do you know his past, though? Do you know how many relationships she's been in? Do you know how much money he lost while he was gambling? No one knows about that, but I know that. Do you know that his parents didn't really want him? Did you know that she was supposed to be a boy? That's what her parents really wanted. And so they tried to do all these things and uh, treatments in order to make the baby come out as a boy, but it wasn't. Did you know that? Did you know that that person is a loner, is a loser? We all have these labels. 
Saul had labels on him also. When he came to the church in Jerusalem, they said, he's a bad one. Nobody wants to be around him, especially not Christians. He's mean. He's wicked. He's evil. We all have these labels. And what we need is for someone to look beyond those labels and to see us for who we really are. And there was one person named Barnabas of all the leaders. Barnabas said, I see something in Saul beyond the label. We need people who are not afraid of the labels that are attached to us by others. People who will see us for who we really are, who aren't afraid of our past, who are willing to see us for who we are. When I was 22, 23, I was asked by my, my pastor at the time to go and speak at a retreat with him. He was going to preach, and I was going to do a seminar. It wasn't a church retreat. It wasn't a campus retreat. It was a retreat for people who were in a juvenile detention center. They had done a lot of bad things. It was not just, I lied to my parents, I'm here at juvie. It's, I stole a car. I assaulted a person. I broke into a home with a weapon. It was these kinds of things, and these were the people who were at this detention center. I didn't know anything about that. I was scared to death. I'd barely preached to nice suburban students, let alone people who were in a juvenile center locked up. And so I remember just being so afraid. What do I say? What do I say to them? And I was shaking and I was nervous. And a couple days before, my pastor said, hey, some of these people, you've never seen people like this before. Uh, you may be afraid of them. I was like, I am afraid of them. And I'm afraid of them even before ever having met them. And this is what he said. He said, um, don't speak to their faces. Okay. Don't speak to their tattoos. Don't speak to their hardness. He said, speak to their heart. He said, speak to their heart. Because underneath the labels, underneath all the things that people see, underneath all of the tattoos and all of their, their record, there's a person who's longing to be loved, who is deeply loved by a father in heaven. He said, don't speak to their eyes. Don't speak to their faces. He said, speak to their hearts. Beyond the label, beyond whatever label you carry, house church shepherd, right, rich businessman, whatever labels you have, there's a person that's desperately wanting to be seen for who we really are. That was Paul. That was Saul. And Barnabas peeled back all of the, you understand this? Here, here's, here's Saul, right? When he gets into the church in Jerusalem, nobody lets him in the doors. What's his label? His label is persecutor, it's terrorist, it's fearful person. You get to the end of his life, which we looked at last week, it's super apostle, greatest missionary the world has ever known, the architect of the church in the ancient world, the foundation builder of, the, of Christianity as we know it. What changed between there and then? The only thing that changed was that there was a man named Barnabas who looked at him and said, I don't see what everybody else sees. I'm going to look beyond the labels. And he began to pour strength and courage into Saul so that at the end, it says, the church grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Don't you want somebody like that? Soupy sees beyond all of that stuff in your life. 
sees beyond your title. He's a, he's a divorcee. He's, he's a failure. He's messed up. You know how many businesses he's blown. Who sees beyond all that stuff and just sees you for who you really are. Don't you long for somebody like that? The transforming power of someone who's able to speak into your life, who sees beyond, doesn't care about your labels or titles because at the end of Paul's life, Saul's life, he had some great titles also. It's not just the bad labels that people place on you, but we need people who are going to see us for who we really are, apart from the good titles that people place on you. He leads our worship team. We need someone who's going to cut through all that and see you for who you really are. He's a house church shepherd. She's a house church shepherd. He's a pastor. I need people, Barnabases in my life, who don't care that I'm pastor, David, Pastor DL, who just peel back. I got four people who live with me who don't see me as Pastor DL, and they'll speak the truth into my life. But I need brothers. I need men in my life, and they're people I I spent a lot of time with over my sabbatical, people who just cut through all of that stuff. How's your time with God been? You connecting well with Jesus? You know, the way you said that to that person, don't you think it kind of hurt him when you said that? People who just look back, they're not afraid of you and they're not impressed by you. That's what we need. People, they're not afraid of you and they're not impressed by your titles or all the great things that you do. People just see you for who you are, for who you really are. That's the first thing that we all need and that's what Barnabas saw in Saul. He cut through all that stuff and he said, here's a man. Here's a man who's God's got on a mission and he saw that. First thing, we all need someone who's going to look past our labels and titles. Second thing we need is we all need someone who's going to connect us to the body of Christ. When I was a high school student, um, when I was a, in, our youth, in our youth ministry in Virginia, um, when I was a junior, senior, actually even when I was a sophomore, I really like, had it in my heart to take care of the younger ones in our in our youth ministry. And so when I was a 10th grader, I was just trying to hang out with the 7th graders and 6th graders. And as, as I got older, these, these young people would grow up. And, um, you know, we have this weird way. I had this weird way of interacting with people. Maybe young people still do where um, you can't be, like, outwardly, overtly nice to them. Uh, you you kind of got to maintain a posture of coolness. And so I tried to, to, to like them and be nice to them and really cared for them and would send them notes and stuff like that. But I had to do it in, 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 in an own weird, twisted way. And so what I did was I called people that I liked, I called them a dork. And it wasn't, it wasn't a bad thing. It stood for dynamite, out of sight, radical kid. But, you know, we call them dork. So that when new people would come, like, man, that guy calls everyone a dork, but they all love him for some reason. So, you know, that's kind of the way it was. Hey, dork. And they'd be like, oh, hey. You know, he's <laughs> like so happy. What's up, dork? And then they, but they knew. It's a term of endearment. But there was one guy named Doug who didn't know. I think, you know, we just kind of made these assumptions. You come to our church, we call you dork, and it's a good thing. But he kind of missed that memo. And so when we called him dork, he thought it meant that we thought he was a, a loser, like a goofball. What's up, dork? And then he would always be like, hey, guys. I was like, how come you're the only one that acts like that? I, so I, I just said, well, Doug is really shy. He's kind of like, he likes to keep to himself. You know, with his buddies, he's like, cool. But with older people, he's a little bit intimidated. So, so I, I, I called it to him. I said it to him more. I tried to really warm him. Hey, dork, come over here. Sit with us, dork. Come on, dork. But he didn't understand that it wasn't a term of endearment to him. He was really being offended by it. And so 
years later at a retreat, I'd gone back to serve as a counselor, or, and he was an upperclassman, and he's like, man, I really have had this grudge against you. I was like, why, dork? It's like, that's why. I was like, what are you talking about? Don't you know dork means dynamite, out of sight, radical kid? He's like, it does? So for all these years, he grew up thinking that I was calling him like a dweeb the whole time I was saying, hey, we like you. But for all those years, for like two, three years, the damage had set in and he felt shunned. He felt like he didn't belong with the rest of us at church. You ever felt shunned by the church? Maybe because of your age, maybe because of your past, maybe because of something about who you are or who you used to be, the way you look, the way you dress, whatever it might be. That's how Saul felt. Just he'd been changed by God, and he was like so excited. He was telling everybody about Jesus, and, and his life is in danger. He's got this adrenaline rush. People are trying to kill him. He escaped. He made it. He's like excited. He gets to the one group of people. Surely I can find camaraderie with these brothers, these leaders in the church. And he knocks on the door. Yo, it's me. And they're like, yo, it's you. We don't want you. We're afraid of you. Guys, lock the doors. It's Saul. He's out to cause trouble. He's out to do bad stuff. And he's like, that's not who I am. That's not me. I'm changed. I'm different. The people from his old religion, they wanted to kill him because he was a traitor to them. The people from his newfound faith, they don't trust him. So he's shunned by them. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. You've ever felt shunned by a church? They've been praying for you. They've been reaching out to you. They were scared of you and you come and, and all of a sudden they're suspicious of you. That's Paul. That's Saul. And nobody wants to give him a chance. They don't believe that the gospel was big enough to transform his life, that he's no longer a slave to sin. He's no longer a slave to the things that he used to be a slave to. He's a new creation. That when Christ Jesus set him free, he's free indeed. And no one believes it, but Barnabas, verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas is vouching for him. He's saying he's different, guys. He's different. Whom the Son says free is free indeed. But the church is like, I don't know. But Barnabas says he's one of us, guys. And he connects him to the body of Christ. This is huge because people like Saul might get salty and say, you know what, forget those people. Forget those people. Man, they don't, they act like they know the way, but they don't know. They ain't the ones preaching the gospel like, look at me. He could have said, forget those people. I'm going to go off on my own. And Barnabas could have very easily said, you know what, Saul? They don't get it, these Christians. Yeah, let's just, you and me, let's just go off on our own. We could blaze our own trail. We'll set this world on fire for Jesus. We know, man, those guys don't know. He could have said, Paul, yeah, you know what? They're not that great. They're not that great. Just, you don't need them. You go do your thing. Keep doing what you're doing. But Barnabas understands that Saul desperately needs the church, and the church desperately needs Saul. This is what we need, guys, is we need people going to connect us to the church because your church needs you. And you need your church.
It is one of the greatest lies of Satan who wants us to maintain in, uh, ourselves in isolation when God is calling us into community and into proximity with the body of Christ. Here's what we need, y'all. We need friends who, when you get, when you get stiffed and you get, uh, you get upset and you get bitter about things, they don't just go, oh, yeah, let's go cry together and let's go be sad. And, yeah, I know it's Sunday, but let's go to the mountains and let's go to the beach and, and do all these things. Don't worry about church. We'll go back next week or we'll go back in a month. No, 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 no. This is what Barnabas does. He says, I don't care. I don't care. We're going to get you connected to the church, to the body of Christ, because that's what you need. You got friends who care enough about you that when you're not at church, they're going to go pursuing after your heart and your soul enough to, to, to step on your time. We live in this weird time when people are like, dude, uh, I don't think uh, I have the right to speak into their lives. What are you talking about? How do you not have the right to speak into someone in your life? You've been doing life with them for five years. They're your family. How do you not have a right to speak into their lives? Oh, I'm, I don't want to step on anybody's toes. That's not like me then you're not understanding biblical spirituality, my friends, because the Bible speaks of a very invasive faith that says you correct one another, you pursue one another, you rebuke one another. If someone is, is wandering, then you bring them back, you've saved them from a multitude of sin. And we live in this time where people are like, no, 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 no. We live in this individualistic time. It's different here. Because my faith, don't, don't bother me. My faith is a, is a private faith. It's just between me and God. I don't need the church. It's just me and God. Then you don't understand biblical Christianity. Okay, you can push back all you want. But the Bible says, yeah, your faith is personal, but it's never private. Your faith is personal. You need to choose Christ on your own. You need to grow. You need to feed yourself. But it's deeply communal and corporate. So all these commands in Scripture, you cannot fulfill. How are you going to encourage one another if you ain't in a relationship with anybody? It's not simply a privatized faith. It's personal, but it's corporate. And the greatest lie of Satan in church people is you don't need church. You go ahead and skip a day. You go ahead and skip a week. Go ahead. It's a family vacation. You go do your own thing. You don't need the church. And what happens You've seen this happen. If you live up north, you, you build a fire with kindling, got a bunch of sticks, set that thing on fire. Wow, this fire is burning really bright. Why? The wood is great. It's very dry. It's perfect. You take one of those things that are burning on fire and you set it aside, that fire is going to die out in a matter of seconds. Why? Because you separate it from the warmth of the fire in which we're created to live in. And we need people who are not afraid of your past and who are not impressed by your title to say, hey, you know what, they, not been at, they haven't been at church. We need to go get them. We need to go talk to them. We need to go pursue them. Because there's a lot of people like that who've been hurt by the church. One of my, one of my friends, man, it's a, it's a wonder that he's still, he's a pastor now, but his life, his past been redeemed. He had a very unsavory past. His parents in that tight-knit community that he was part of, uh, there was a lot of infidelity, and, and it was very public. And so people knew about it, and so their family was shunned by the church. Parents didn't go to church for a long, long time. And my friend came to know the Lord, got saved, and, and, and just life, was, he was just, and he's still on fire for the Lord. But what he says, I love this, man, I love this. Knowing the brokenness of his own life, knowing the brokenness in his parents and the kind of church that they would never, ever darken the doors of, he said, this is the kind of church I want to pastor. He prays to God and he said, God, 
send me the people that every other church rejects. Send me the people that no other church in the world wants. Send me those people. He says, if I don't, who will? People who were rejected because of their label, because of their title. And there wasn't anyone to bring them back in. Nothing could be worse in a body of Christ, perhaps, than that cool, callous indifference that lets people week by week stray from the community of faith. Because when we stray, that's when we do silly things, sinful things, make bad choices. Someone's been away from the community for a long time. They come back, completely different person. What happened? Well, what happened was they were away from the community, and we didn't pursue them the way that we needed to. That's why Hebrews 10, 24, 25, don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another. Pour strength into one another daily and all the more as you see the day approaching. The second thing we need is, man, we need people who are going to go after our heart and soul and connect us to the body because we need it. As broken as the church is, as broken as this church was that he was talking about, he says, still, you need them and they need you. Second thing, last thing, what is it about a Barnabas? We all need someone who will gladly pay a price for us. You know, this all happens so quickly. Verse 26, no, no one believed him. Verse 27, Barnabas took him and brought him. Verse 28, Saul stays with him. Verse 29, he preaches. Verse 30, he goes to Tarsus. It all happens so quickly, but what we don't see is the human element behind so much of it. What did it cost Barnabas in order to take him and bring him to the apostles to tell them how Saul in his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him. What did it cost him? It cost him whatever it would cost you to put your neck on the line for somebody that so many people want to kill. To be a friend of someone who's wanted by the FBI to say, I'm going to Cast my lot with you. I'm going to be your friend. I'm going to hang with you. Whatever it takes, I'm going to be there for you. That's what it costs. It costs him the very thing it cost the disciples to stay with Jesus on the night he was betrayed. That caused them to say, you know what? Jesus, quite frankly, that's a little bit too much for me to pay. Uh, my, they're going to kill you. I'm going to be next. I don't want to be involved with that. Yet knowing that, Barnabas says, Saul, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to be here with you. It's like Buzz Lightyear to Woody, right? Friends in danger, friends in need, or this is when they need friends the most. Did, did, did Woody give up on me when I was attached to that rocket ship or whatever it was? That's what it means. Right? You need people who are going to be with you when you need it the most, when you don't have the strength to carry on. And Barnabas puts his neck on, he, as, a, as a leader, all his clout, all the the chips that he had earned in the church in Jerusalem by being this great man of encouragement. And, and in a couple of weeks, we're actually going to do a series on what it means to pour courage into each other's lives because we need to learn how to do this because our world is not very good at giving courage to each other. And I want us to be a community that does that. And we're going to look at the life of Barnabas, how we can encourage without even using words. But this is what he's doing, right? He's just pouring strength into in, in Saul. But everything that it took, all the clout that he had, he's like, I'm cashing in my chips. I'm going all in on this person, Saul. And if Saul is not the winning hand, if he's not who I think he is, 
then I've just, I've just lost everything. But he says, I'm willing, to, I'm willing to give everything because I believe in the dream that God has for him and what God can do through his life and what God is gonna do in him. Don't you wish you had someone like that in your life? Like, man, I'm gonna pay a price for him. I think about one of our, our, our brothers in our congregation, and I don't wanna uh, put anyone on the spot today, but I, I think about how there are some people in our, in our congregation who are here right now because when this young man was in his early 20s, he said, I'm going to fast 40 days, no food. <laughs> I'm just going to fast for 40 days for my house church people and for my family members, and I'm going to lay it all down. And he paid a price, and there are countless people in here whose stories are familiar to me, whose chains were broken in large part because someone was willing to pay the price. Don't you wish you had someone like that in your life? And I think about that. It's not my story, but a story of a, of a guy named Christopher Kerr. Um, I heard this many years ago. But uh, Christopher, ninth grade student, was walking home from school one day. There was another kid a little bit in, in front of him, and, and he caught Christopher's eye because it was a Friday after school. They're walking home, and this kid had backpack was full, but he also had his arms full of textbooks. And he's like, man, in, in, in ninth grade, nobody gets homework on the weekend. I don't know why he's got all this. He, he thought it was kind of weird. Apparently, so did some other kids who were walking home that day, some mean kids, some not nice kids. And so they saw that boy walking with his arms full of books, and and they pushed him and they shoved him. Because the kid fell down, his glasses fell in the grass, and he spun around and, and fell, and his books went everywhere. And so Christopher, one, one of that, that, that crew, but Christopher walked up to him, and um, he just, his heart broke for him. So he walked up to him, and he said, you okay? And when that boy looked back up at him, Christopher looked at him, and he says later, I've never seen eyes that were that sad before in my entire life. His eyes looked back at him. Christopher picked up his glasses from the grass, put on them, helped them up, picked up his books, and he said, where do you, where you live? Where are you going? So that day, they began this, like, friendship, Kyle and Christopher. So Kyle had moved from this private school. He would kind of lived around Christopher, but he, he never really saw him because he went to a private school, and then he transferred to public school, and he said, man, it's just been the hardest transition. Everybody's been so mean. The way I was treated that day is the way that people treated me at school. And so they bonded over things like football and, and, and video games, and, and then Christopher would invite Kyle to come to his church and began this, 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 this cool and, and fast friendship. Four years later, um, both of them had become pretty popular in school and, and been successful. And um, Kyle, the kid who got knocked down years earlier, became valedictorian of his school. And so he stood up there and was giving the, the valedictorian speech uh, during graduation. It was like really cool. And he got up there and he's like, yeah, you know, graduation is time to give thanks to the people that have helped us get to where we are. So, you know, my parents and, and my teachers, all these people, uh, thank you. And, and he's like, but I want to talk to you uh, about... A friend, uh, a friend named Christopher. And everybody knew they were, they were tight with each other. 
He said, our, our, our friendship began when we were in ninth grade. Ninth grade was really hard for me up until that point in time because I transferred to a new school. I felt like a loser. I felt like nobody cared about me. Nobody saw me. And the day that Christopher and I met, these kids pushed me. They made fun of me, and they basically confirmed what I thought was true about myself. In fact, that day I was going home with my arms full of books because that day I was going to end my life. And I was taking my books home because I didn't want my mom to have to go and clean out the locker afterwards. So that day, Christopher gave me a reason to live. And he gave me hope. And he gave me purpose. He came alongside of me when I needed it the most. And he gave me courage. And of course, everyone hearing, surprised that this all-American valedictorian almost was not going to be able to make it to that stage. But there was one named Christopher who acted like Barnabas, who paid the price, saw beyond the labels, beyond what everybody else saw, connected him to a group of people that would give him life and ultimately gave him strength. You know what, what that does? When someone takes their relational social capital and they cash that in, like what that does for a person. You know when the CEO of a large company goes on undercover boss and gives a franchise to an hourly employee. What does that do for that young person who's fighting and struggling to make it? What does it do for a person when the, the captain of the football team decides to take the handicapped young girl to the dance and says, you are my princess. Not as a joke, not as a gag, but because he sees beyond all of the other stuff and he pays a price in order to pour courage into her life. When, when, when the star athlete at Florida State University sits with the middle school student who's autistic and has no friends and sits with him, all of a sudden this kid has this renewed sense of, man, I can go on living. When the kid whose birthday party nobody shows up to at Chuck E. Cheese is so sad, this celebrity hears about it on Twitter and says, we're going to get all our celebrity friends and we're going to throw him the best party. He'll never forget this birthday party. What does that do for somebody? How much courage does that pour into a person's heart? Don't you want a Barnabas like that? I pray for that for my kids. Father, help them to find great friends. But I also pray, but before that, help them to be this kind of a friend to others. How does this happen? You only can be... Uh, be a person who gets people like Barnabas, you know, it's not, it's not hard and fast, but you want a friend like Barnabas, then you got to be a friend like Barnabas. You, you, you want someone to, to, to pay a price for you, then you got to take a step and pay a See, this is Barnabas. It wasn't just, hey, Barnabas is cool. He does encouraging things. He does that, but that's not what it says. It says he is a son of encouragement, meaning he, this, his personhood has been transformed. It's not, okay, someone's going to do something nice for Barnabas. Barnabas does something nice for someone else. It's his person has been transformed in order that he is an encouragement to other people. How does that happen? Because somehow, somewhere, and in some way, Barnabas was constantly receiving this kind of strength from someone else. 
And this is the same gift that you and I have. The son of the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, is living in you and me also. You want a bar- Do you want a friend like Barnabas? Can I tell you, you've got one who's better than Barnabas. You've got a savior who saw beyond all the labels. He saw the labels. He knew the labels attached to you. You are a sinner. The wages of sin is death. You are hell-bound. You're deserving of wrath. You're deserving of nothing good. You are a hell-bound, hell-deserving, hell-bent child of the enemy on a highway to hell. That's your destiny. But he saw beyond all of that. And he was willing to pay the ultimate price. What does it do for you when someone of that kind of stature says, I will give my life for you? Does that pour strength into you to say, I can can go another day. I can live another day because I'm not defined by how the world defines me. I'm defined not by who people say I am. I'm defined by whose I am. And I belong to the king. I'm a child of God. This is who I am. When he's constantly pouring into you, he paid the ultimate price in order that you might be connected to a body of Christ who needs you and whom you desperately need. You have one so much better than Barnabas. You've got Jesus who's constantly pouring into you. And if you've got that, then you don't need, you never live in lack. You never lack for anything. We become the boldest, strongest, most courageous people that the world could ever know. Because he's given himself to us. And as we receive day by day, our hearts become transformed so that we too become daughters of encouragement, sons of encouragement, so that it changes the way that we live and relate to people. So he says, receive all that from me so that you can go and do likewise. And then, man, your relationships will begin to change. You will become a people of encouragement. Let's pray together. Can I ask us to just consider and think about our lives? Everyone needs a Paul, everyone needs a Timothy, and everyone needs a Barnabas. You will become the average of the five people you spend the majority of your time with. Do you have these three people in your fave five? Right now, right now, God is wanting to pour strength into you. So can I just ask you to, just in a posture of receiving, just to lift your palms upwards to the Lord and say, Lord, if you're wanting to fill me, then I want to receive. It's not that God ever withholds from us. It's that we don't want what he has because our hands are full. Let's open our hands to the Lord and say, God, I want more of you in my life. Just for a couple moments, do that. Lord, I want more of you. Fill me with the Holy Spirit, the spirit of the paraclete, the encouraging one. Fill me with more of you. Just pray that for a couple moments. as we did as we began this service as our presider Eugene led us through being reminded 
that we are right now lifted up into the heavenly places, joining the festive throng of angels and saints, awaiting the final resurrection. We sing that song, and on that day, my strength is failing, the end draws near, my time has come. Still my soul will sing your praise unending 10,000 years and then forevermore. I think about the saints who are in heaven and how passionately they sing that, seeing Jesus the way that they do now. And it inspires me to want to sing that song with greater meaning. But as we seek to be a people who encourage one another, can you put your hand on the shoulder of the person next to you or on their hold their hand if you feel comfortable doing that and let's pray for one another you may know the struggle that the person next to you is going through you may know where the advocate is needed to come alongside and walk with them to pour courage into them or you may not know either you're like Barnabas to Saul you know or you're like Christopher to Kyle you don't know but what you don't know isn't as important as what you do. And what you do know is that every person needs a Barnabas. So can we do that? Can we pray for one another? Here's where we begin practicing what it is to pay a price for someone else. Just pray for them. Whatever you know, whatever the Spirit of God puts in your heart, to pray for them, okay? This, you know, your, your friend's life next to you could change right now in this minute. One encounter can change a life forever. God can do that right now. Let's pray in faith to the God who changed Saul, who met him in one moment on the road to Damascus. This could be someone's Damascus road too because God is here. Can you pray for one another? Let's pray. You can pray out loud if you want. You can pray quietly if you want, but let's pray for one another right now. Pray courage, pray strength into their lives. Come alongside, minister to them. Be a paraclete that they need right now. Let's pray for a couple moments. I'll pray for us as we continue. Let's pray for one another. Father in heaven, we pray that what has begun here would continue. Now, churches call them fellowship halls, but so little true fellowship actually happens in those places. We pray that this building would be a place where Paul's and Timothy's and Barnabas's would congregate, strengthening one another so that we could then live life in the real world to bring in those who don't know you. We practice here. We play the game during the week. We practice here. We play the game during the week. Help us to live out our faith, to be people like that. Remind us who we are. Remind us whose we are. We are your children. Beyond any other label, we are yours. We love you because you've loved us first. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.